my verses in for a sermon and not having 150 verses of a chapter at the beginning of it, like, it's kind of liberating. So we're going to still be in James chapter 1. You can go ahead and start turning there. We're going to be in verse 12 today, Um, but I kind of alluded to it while I was praying. Um, We're going to be talking a lot about endurance today. Uh, So I've got a photo here. Does any, this, we'll put this up. Does anybody know who Eliud Kipchoge is? A lot of shaking heads. Anybody want to take a guess? He's the guy who this year was the first person, first human ever, to run a marathon in under two hours. A feat thought, a feat thought impossible. And when I tell you what that means statistically, he had to accomplish, you'll understand why that seemed impossible. To run a two-hour marathon, you have to maintain an average speed of 13.1 miles per hour in your run. To put that in context, the treadmill that I don't use at my house (laughs) only goes to 12 miles an hour. And he had to maintain that. That is an average four-minute, 35-second pace per mile. Again, to give some context, I believe the world record for the fastest mile ever was just under four minutes. So he's running near world record mile pace for 26.2 miles. Now, there's, when he ran his two, sub-two-hour marathon, he beat it by about 30 seconds this year. Now, they set the they set it up so that it would be perfect conditions for him to run this marathon in. They picked a stretch of land that is perfectly flat, no ups, no downs. He had this group of pacers that he ran with that they rotated out every three miles so that he's running with fresh, world-class marathon runners to help him maintain his pace. They had an electric car in front of him so that there would be no emissions blowing in his face, that was projecting a digitally accurate projection on the ground saying where he needed to be standing on the ground to be maintaining the perfect pace to hit a two-hour marathon the whole time. And as he would fall back, it would tell him where he needed to get to on the road to start catching back up to his pace. All of these were like perfect conditions, but even as he was running, at about mile 20, he started to fall off of his pace just a little bit. Now, I need not tell you that even to fall off by about a second can begin to set him back farther and farther and farther and farther. But, but for the last few miles, he didn't just pick his pace back up to catch back up to the two-hour pace. He increased his average per mile pace and finished the last mile in something like four minutes and 20 seconds, something like, like, it's ridiculous what this guy accomplished. Because because it wasn't just that he could run 26 miles, which I, I couldn't do that. Who in here could? Thank goodness Jordan has already left the room. <laughs> right? He's going to be like, I got a shout out. Not, 
Not only can he run 26 miles, not only can he run 26 miles at a close to world record pace per mile, but when it got to the end, when it got to the hardest part, he actually improved his performance. He had to finish stronger. He had to finish stronger than he started. If he was going to accomplish all of these things that he was trying to accomplish, if he was going to, to break through this barrier that seemed humanly impossible, he couldn't just be fast all along the way. He had to finish it well. He had to finish it as strongly as he started it, or stronger. We're going to talk a lot about this idea of finishing things well, being strong as we run toward the finish this morning. Um, when speaking, and, and again, this is speaking about a vision that God had given John. He's in exile, and God's giving him this picture of what is to come for the churches. And a lot of what is to come for the church down the road, when you, when you hear it described as John's reading it out to the churches, is not necessarily something that you're like, yay, that sounds like so much fun. I can't wait to experience tribulation and pain and martyrdom. These are going to be so much fun for us. That's not really where we go. But, but what John does is he goes ahead and he begins to give the church encouragement as to what they're supposed to do when they face this. Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 10 and 11, says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Remember that idea, the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He's saying, you've got to be able to tough it out, because if you can get to the end, you're going to get this crown of life. There's a reward that comes at the end. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. He's commending those who faced something awful and finished what they had been charged with. They finished well. And as we get back into James this morning... Starting in verse 12, this is that same idea that James is trying to teach to the churches. This idea of you have to finish well, you have to finish strong, you have to finish this thing that you have begun. Uh, James chapter 1 verse 12 starts with, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So think back to what he said in Revelation. That idea of the crown of life. What James says here, 
If you remain steadfast under trial, those who stand strong, those who finish the test, withstand the test, will receive the crown of life. This idea of the crown of life is, is this picture of like the award that would be given to somebody who had just finished running a race. Think of our friend Elliot, who just finished running this two-hour marathon. They didn't put a crown on his head, but he was, he was given all these accolades. I'm sure he's got plaques and awards and all these sorts of things showing what it is that he's just accomplished. And what James is saying and what John was saying in Revelation was that when you finish strong, you are commended. You get this crown of life. But this crown of life is more than just an award that you get for doing a good job and finishing a thing. Did anybody ever like run track or anything or do anything where you won an individual award or anything like that? I, I did track in like second grade. I came in second in the shot put competition. There were three of us. So I beat one kid. But you get that like one little trophy that says you did the thing, right? You accomplished this thing. You, you won something. Nowadays we give those to everybody. So that's a different, that's a different commentary for a different sermon. But I got that trophy, or I got that medal, or I don't even remember what it was. The whole point is, I don't care about what that trophy is. It's not like that didn't really linger with me. That doesn't continue to define who I am. But this picture of the crown of life obviously kind of keeps coming back up throughout Scripture. This, this commendation for the people of God who endure to the end, who finish well, who, who finish the test, finish facing what it is that God has put before them. And those who endure receive the crown of life. It's this picture of salvation. It's this picture of, it's this picture of you've accomplished these things, you've endured, you've, you've been in this with me, and now you receive eternal life. Now, what I'm not trying to say is, the way that we behave, the things that we do are what, earning our, are what earn us our salvation. There's plenty, there's plenty of other scripture, and we'll probably read a little bit in just a few minutes, that, that, that informs us that it's not that we do this thing that makes us saved, but it's what he's saying is those who endure to the end, that's the final piece of evidence that demonstrates that God had changed their heart, that God had saved them. That, so, so as you think through your own life, as I am as I'm going through facing all of the things that I am facing, as I'm challenged to be drawn away, pulled away, we talk about temptation in just a second. If I am one who endures, if I am one who withstands those tests, if I am one who remains steadfast under trial, when I stand the test I will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. God's saying, if you make it to the end, that's kind of the final marker that shows that you were saved, that God has changed you, that you are in the body of Christ and that he is going to welcome you into his home. That's why, that's why when we get to Revelation chapter 20, it says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's why in Revelation chapter 2 it says those who conquer will not be hurt by the second death. Like we have nothing to fear. Because if we endure, we know we get Jesus in the end. We know that we're saved. We know that we're in it.
but he immediately pairs this with this picture of temptation, temptation towards sin, and this caution that, that sin will, will ultimately, well, temptation will lead to sin, and sin will lead to death. He's kind of, he's kind of balancing this picture of the crown of life, this, this picture of victory, this picture of eternal life, this picture of success in the face of, you know, this, this place between holiness and sin. And then he's saying, the other direction. You go the other way. That leads toward death. You pursue sin. You pursue sinful desire. You, per, you, you, you chase after those things. Those lead to death. That's not, that's not enduring to the end. That's not remaining steadfast under trial. That's, that's facing trial. That's facing temptation and instead saying, I want those things rather than to remain holy and stay in the will and presence of God. It's important that we're able to examine our own lives, ourselves, and say, when faced with trials, right? We've already been talking about trials throughout the book of James, right? I mean, think about where we started here. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? We've been memorizing. What does it produce? Steadfastness. Stick-to-itiveness. I love that word. Like... You, the more you're tested, the more you go through, the more that God makes, gives you to face, the more challenge that you fight through, the more you realize that you can continue to endure. Why can we continue to endure as we face more painful things? Because every time we face something painful, you realize more and more what it is that God has done in you, what it is that God is getting you through. I mean, think through the rest of the beginning of chapter 1. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You realize what it is that you have in Christ. You don't need anything else because he's given you this ability to withstand various trials of many kinds. We become steadfast because of what Christ has put in us. When I think of this book, when I think of everything that James says, it's so much, do this, do this, just do this. This is what it looks like. To, but, but this whole opening chapter, the more we've been going through it, the more I just see this reminder of, you got to do this, but you can't. And you have to be dependent on God to give you what it takes to get you to do those things. You aren't able to accomplish these things on your own. If you lack wisdom, right, we talked about that, ask God. How do I endure? He puts us through things so that we can realize his faithfulness to us all along. He continues to be there for us. He continues to be faithful to us. All of this testing, all of these trials that he puts us through are basically like a training regimen for us as his followers, right? Paul kind of uses the same picture, the same picture of an athlete training. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 25, says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What Paul's saying is, just like an athlete who has to train, 
We were talking about Eliud Kipchoge, and we were talking about what it is that he accomplished. But his training regimen, and, and I can, if, you, if you're interested, there's a great video that a guy on YouTube did breaking down his whole training regimen. If you want to know where it is, I can send it to you afterwards. But, um, I mean, yes, when he ran the race, he ran in perfect conditions. Flat roads, perfect weather, no wind, people helping him run along the way. He trained on dirt trails up and down mountains all the way up until the race. I can't walk up a flight of stairs without my heart rate jumping to 160. I know this because my watch tells me now. It says something's wrong with you. You know why something's wrong with me? Because I haven't run in insert amount of time here that's embarrassing to admit. When we don't train, could I go run an, a, a, a mile right now? Maybe. Would I be miserable by the end? Absolutely. Would I be miserable by a quarter mile? Probably. Because I haven't been training to accomplish that. Because I haven't been facing what things I must face to be able to withstand the, the pain or the exhaustion or the boredom that comes with running long distances. All of those things. I don't do pain. I don't like boredom. So why would I put myself through that? I may not be training for a real race where I'm going to go out and run. But if I'm to receive the crown of life, to, to, to complete the work of salvation in me, as God completes that, he's going to train me. He's going to put me through things that I have to face, that I have to fight through so that I can, like Paul said, keep, basically keep discipline my body to remain under control because and he's looking at it from a preacher's perspective, which I obviously am going to connect to. Lest after preaching to others myself, I should be disqualified. Like this idea, I have to train so hard because if I say, you should not be doing this, but I haven't trained myself to keep my temptation away from doing that, and I go do that right afterwards, you're like, why would I listen to this guy? To finish well, to perform like an athlete in peak condition, we have to train. The other cool thing about Kipchoge's training was that he didn't train alone. When he ran that race, he was not by himself. When he was in his training, he had the same group of people running with him to help push him to maintain his pace. He surrounded himself with like-minded people who were trying to help him accomplish that same goal. Sure, they had to be in peak physical condition to be able to run that with him, but their purpose for being there with him during that training period was not for themselves. They were there to push him towards something. They were there to push him toward the ability to endure what it was that he desired to accomplish which I think is a beautiful picture of what the church is here for. If you say, I can't endure, I, don't, I want to give in to this sin, we haven't even gotten to the second half of this yet. 
It'll come much faster, I promise, as you're timing me. But, but if, if, if we're going to endure, we need to surround ourselves with the church. And the church, our, our mentality as the church ought to not be, I got to fight to make sure that I look good to Jesus. But instead, how can I help push everyone around me toward holiness? That should be part of the mentality of the church. How am I pushing somebody toward holiness? How am I helping somebody endure as they are facing trials and temptations? How am I being for somebody else in such a way that I am trying to build them up and I'm not worried necessarily all the time about myself, but I'm concerned for someone else? He had this team around him as he was running this race that were there just to run fast next to him to keep him motivated to continue running fast. I probably stopped running because most of the time that I was running, I was running by myself. Yes, I would start with Tiff, but I could not keep up with Tiff because she is far more stubborn than I am. And she runs much faster, more stubbornly than I do. It gets hard and I quit. But if I was intent on, I'm going to run with this group of people, perhaps it would have helped me to endure more if I had people saying, no, 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 keep going. You can do this. Perhaps I would have gotten angry with them for a little while. No, I don't want to run fast. I don't want to do that. That sounds not fun. That's going to hurt. That's going to be painful. If I run that way, it's going to make my legs sore. That doesn't, right? We're going to face that when the church pushes us sometimes. Sometimes that's going to hurt us to have to push through. Sometimes it's going to make us angry at the people that are there continuing to push us toward finishing this thing that we're trying to accomplish called walking with Christ. But I know me, and if I don't have anybody pushing me, I'm not going to go. I'm going to say, I'm going to sit down right over here and I'm going to sip some Diet Coke because that's far more fun than running and feeling that pain. And it's the training, it's the being around people that are going to keep us away from the temptation toward sin that we face. Now, I think it's really important that, that when we look at temptation here, because he says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. There is a difference between facing trials and being tempted to sin, right? You've heard us say already that sometimes God puts us through trials so that we can learn dependence on him. But James is very specific to say God tempts no one to sin. Why is it that we sin? What is it that temptation does? But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by what? His own sinful desire. The fall, sin entering the world, completely wrecked who we are as mankind, as humanity. We are now bent towards sin. There's this idea called total depravity. We are so broken we can do no good because of the presence of sin within us. 
It's not just that we now have the ability to sin, but everything about who we are before we come into relationship with Jesus is sinful. There's nothing, all, it, Paul says, all your deeds are as filthy rags. Even, even the good things that we do, if we do them out of a motivation to make ourselves look good because we are not in Christ and have no relationship with him, anything that seems morally good done not for the glory of God, not by the power of the Holy Spirit, is sin. And so we are so broken and sinful that, that, that what, what we need to realize here is that when one sins, when one gives in to temptation, they are giving in to a sinful desire that is present in every single one of us. Our sin is our own responsibility. The temptation to sin can come during a trial that God is putting us through. The temptation to sin can also come when we're not, being, when we're not facing anything painful at all and everything's just super cool. We're great. Everything feels good. The temptation to sin can come at any point because the temptation to sin comes from within. The temptation to sin comes from our own sinful desires. And I make that point so strongly. And I think James makes that point so strongly because he does not want us to say, I'm facing bad things. God's making me sin. Look, it's his fault, not mine. He does not want us to be able to blame our sin on someone else. Certainly people can sin against us. And certainly we can face many things throughout our life that lead us toward a place where our sinful desires are constantly present in us and it becomes much easier for us to give in to those because of things that have happened to us. But ultimately, the sin that we commit is our own. And the sin that we commit, we are responsible for. And that's so important for us to understand because we can't say it's their fault or it's this person's fault or it's this situation's fault or it's, it's the situation that I exist in or it's my, my home life or my work life or my school life or my friends that I'm around. It's, it, it, it's all our own responsibility. When we sin, sin comes from our own sinful desires. And I think that's why he makes that point so strongly, so that no one can blame their sin on someone else. E even Paul, when talking about his own sin, says, I still do things I don't want to do. There are things that I want to do that I don't do. There are things that I don't want to do that I do. But at no point is he saying, I still do these things because somebody else did this thing and it's their fault really that I did this thing. There's no blame passing with sin. Our sin is our own. And so James gives us this cautionary tale. Each person when tempted, when he sins, when he is tempted, sorry, let me read this again, starting in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, when we, when we have this desire and we think about what that desire can lead us to. Gives birth. It goes into this, it goes into this kind of childbirth metaphor. It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's grown up, brings forth death. Your sin will be your demise, is what he's warning you. Like, it will kill you. 
which is perfectly balanced against this picture of those who endure receive the crown of life. Like, like life comes from remaining steadfast under trial, not giving in to temptation towards sin. The picture that he's trying to give us here, I think, is that those who finish well are saved. And those who give in to their sins and don't finish running the race, don't finish enduring, are unsaved. Because those who are saved have the power of the Holy Spirit within them to protect them, to keep them from their sinful desires. We can't keep ourselves from our own sinful desires. It's the Holy Spirit working in us that provides the way out. So yet again, it's one more answer of James giving us a thing to do and not to do. Just, just, just finish. Don't sin. But he's leaving us in this place where we still have to remain completely dependent on the power of God to accomplish that through us. It's still not something from within us to do it. It all boils down to trusting Jesus and letting God work through us. You may be thinking, but, but if I'm being tempted by my own desires, like, how do I beat that? You have to find something that's far more desirable than that sin, than that temptation. And that thing needs to be Jesus. Because, because when we are in a relationship with Jesus, he is the one who helps us to endure to the end. If you want to, you can turn to John chapter 6. It's not going to be on the screen because I added it while we were singing earlier. John chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 35. Talking about the things that people are desired. Jesus is, Jesus is addressing this crowd of people who, who came to him because they were hungry and they want Jesus to, to give them something to eat because he's given us something to eat. And he's saying... Your desires are wrong. You're wanting something physical. John 6.35 says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I think you could also change that to say, all who the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me will endure to the end. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. You will have life. You won't remain dead. You don't have to fear that death, just like we started with. You don't have to fear the pain that you'll face as you go through trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith has produced steadfastness, and steadfastness, when it's reached its full effect, leaves you perfect, lacking nothing. You have Jesus. 
Whatever it is that you're facing that hurts, whatever it is that you're facing that's painful, you're facing it so that God can help build this endurance in you so that you can be ready to face the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. Because each time God gets you through this thing, you can look back and say, yep, he's still God. He's still faithful. I've been added into his family. My father has given people to me and they will never leave. Those who my father gives me will not fall away. Our endurance testifies to the completed work of Christ in us. And so I ask you, when faced with trials of various kinds, are you remaining steadfast? Are you making it to the end? Or is the temptation to be lured after your own sinful desires stronger than your desire to be chasing after Jesus? Because that is, that is the differentiating line. That's the dividing mark. That's what shows where your heart truly is. Are you in? Are you out? Are you saved? Are you unsaved? Are you a child of God? Or are you still wandering through the world as an orphan with no hope? If you are in Christ, if you are a part of the church, you should ask yourself, am I running a pace for somebody else? Am I, am I willing to to train myself in such a way that that will be painful and difficult work so that I can run along somebody else and help them maintain their pace, help them endure to the end? Or am I just focused on me and what I'm getting out of this relationship with Jesus? Am I, am I pushing those around me toward holiness? and steadfastness and endurance. The practical application is not that after we get done eating lunch today, we're all going to go outside and just start running. I don't think that would go well. I'm not wearing the right shoes. You probably aren't either. Okay, so a few of us will go run after church today. But... The practical application is that the thought of that challenge ahead, the idea of me going outside right now and trying to run would be terrifying. I don't want to do it. To start doing something like that again would be painful and I don't like the idea. But how much harder is it to think about moving toward Christ-likeness, moving toward holiness, but yet... We have each other. We have everyone here. Why aren't we leveraging what this family is meant to do to push each other towards holiness and push each other away from that temptation to sin and to be there to support people when they're being tempted toward that sin? That's what the church is and that's what we should be doing. Let's pray.